This is an RNZ podcast. Tēnā koutou katoa and welcome to Insight. I'm Philippa Tolley and it's great to have you with us. After the terrorist attacks in Christchurch, there's been increasing focus on the role the internet plays in supporting radicalism. It's home to anonymous internet forums that give opportunities to people to share their thoughts without consequence, no matter how vile. So is closer surveillance of sites, such as the often mentioned 4chan and 8chan, the answer? Or should we be protecting online speech and the anonymous communities that give sometimes oppressed, isolated or victimised people an opportunity to speak? Law enforcement around the world is completely out of their depth. The most grossly and egregious types of expression uh, wouldn't necessarily be covered by it, and that looks like there's a gap in the law. One of the questions that we need to answer is whether or not we could or should have known more. We need and we deserve as New Zealanders to understand... New Zealand is not a surveillance state. There is a growing global alt-right movement that is gaining steam within the darkest shadows of the internet. The attack in Christchurch on the 15th of March was announced on an online anonymous message board called 8chan and the same site has been flooded with messages expressing support for those deadly actions. A so-called manifesto, declared objectionable by the chief censor and described as a crude booklet that promotes murder and terrorism, was embraced and shared by the site's users. Aspects of this booklet appear to show how important such anonymous communities were in the author's world. They referenced memes, in-jokes and discussion topics that are popular on 8chan and other similar sites like the more established 4chan. But no one seemed to be watching until it was too late. Ginger Gorman, an Australian investigative journalist who recently published a book about online hate, has been watching for years following sites like 8chan and 4chan. She says nothing about what happened surprised her, as white nationalist radicalisation is happening in these anonymous spaces. These are conversations that are being had in the cesspits of the internet, like uh, 4chan, 8chan. It's actually uh, part of a whole culture that exists there. 4chan and 8chan are websites that essentially host chat rooms or forums, where people can write and post images anonymously. You don't need to set up an account or a username. Their political discussion forums have long been known for extremist ideas and material, such as racism, homophobia, sexism, graphic violence and, occasionally, child pornography. A-chan was created in 2013 by an American teenager who had religiously used 4chan from the age of 12. Frederick Brennan wanted to create his own place where people could talk freely about whatever they wanted. For the first year or so, the topics were fairly innocuous, but as the site grew in popularity, so did the alarming nature of the content. In 2015, the Washington Post took aim at 8chan, describing it as a more lawless version of 4chan and a site that welcomed forums dedicated to paedophilia, suicide and concerted harassment and trolling. Frederick Brennan, now in his mid-twenties and speaking from his current home in the Philippines, says he was simply focused on boosting the popularity of his website. At that time, all that mattered to me was making a big image board site, and it didn't really matter how that happened. Like, to me, the toxicity was not something that, like, really ever got to me. You know what I mean? 
you didn't consider it. Right. I, I barely considered it. Like, what was more important to me? Because I knew 4chan was extremely toxic also. And they had been running for since 2004. So to me, you know, it was 2013 by that point. All, it was going on 4chan's 10-year anniversary, actually. I felt like if they can do it, why can't I? I just felt like at that time, because I was very experienced in these kinds of message boards, that, oh, this is just what the Internet is, and these journalists just don't understand. He did leave 8chan the following year, in 2016, out of frustration with the technology, although he says the increasingly hateful content did play a part. He says he was shocked when he checked the site on the 15th of March, but not necessarily by what people were saying. Of course, the first thing I did was check it, Jen. I don't really use it anymore. I hadn't been on it in a few months. Yeah, I mean, it was extremely shocking to me the way that the administration handled that. You know, the administration of HN, the way they handled that. There is precedent for removing, you know, very hateful content that incites people to violence. He says the people who run sites like HN have the power to remove posts, videos and images they believe could be harmful, but in the pursuit of free speech, it's usually a decision they avoid. Frederick Brennan says he doesn't feel particularly guilty that a mass murder was celebrated on a website he created. I, I feel like, at least this is how I've rationalised it to myself, that if it wasn't HN, it would have been some other image board and that there was nothing I could have done to get them to close 8chan. I guess I felt a little bit guilty, but I'm not sure it was rational to feel guilty. 8chan's current owner, Jim Watkins, posted a video statement soon after the shootings, saying it's impossible to predict when someone might, in his words, snap. The background music is his own. An announcement of an upcoming murder, giving a time and a place, or maybe even the target, is criminal, is not protected speech, and anyone who utters such things should expect to be arrested. However, there are no Tom Cruises out there with psychic assistance to stop someone from committing a crime before they commit it. He says the shootings weren't the fault of 8chan or other social media platforms that hosted some of the objectionable material associated with the terrorist attack. Yet, Martin Cocker, the chief executive of New Zealand's online safety organisation NetSafe, disagrees. He says 8chan, 4chan and the content people post on them have been on NetSafe's radar for years. Although, until the attacks, NetSafe had no reason to engage with them. That changed in March. He says NetSafe contacted about 40 sites, asking them to remove content relating to the shootings, and only six agreed. Six flatly rejected the request, while the rest, including 8chan and 4chan, just didn't respond, something he found unsurprising. And the blowtorch has really been put onto Facebook and, uh, and the big players, but you know, in the, in the longer term, these sort of, sort of second-tier, third-tier internet sites are actually the really problem areas. They're the ones that they don't particularly abide by our law, but they don't really particularly abide by any laws. They're so dominated by a view of, uh, of freedom of speech, and they're really the home of real problematic, hateful content. So we would like to see um, more attention paid to them uh, and more recognition that, that you know, they are a source of a really significant problem. Like NetSafe, the police appear to have been contacting similar sites. The operator of the American anonymous forum Kiwi Farms, Josh Moon, 
posted on his website an email he received from New Zealand police requesting its users' data, including their email and IP addresses. This was his response. Is this a joke? I'm not turning over information about my users. Tell your superiors they're going to make the entire country and its government look like clowns by trying to censor the internet. And here's the problem. It's virtually impossible to determine who is posting what in the dark, anonymous corners of the internet. Last month via its Twitter account, 8chan said non-US governments have no legal power to force it to do anything. Martin Cocker describes the options available to enforcement and intelligence-gathering agencies as crude. Politicians are also facing questions about whether anything can be done. The National Party leader, Simon Bridges, has called for tighter security laws and further online surveillance. But speaking on Morning Report, the Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, admitted there are difficulties. The NZSIS is focused on the collection and gathering of intelligence, and that includes human intelligence gathering. So do they have the ability to engage? Yes. Is it easy in an environment where there is encryption, where there are closed groups? That's a challenge for every Western democracy. Last month, the Prime Minister announced a call to action led by New Zealand and France to ensure the most popular social media platforms aren't used to organise and promote terrorism. Jacinda Ardern and the French President Emmanuel Macron will host a summit in just over a week's time involving ministers from the G7 group of countries who oversee digital issues and tech companies. They'll be asked to pledge support for what has been named the Christchurch Call, a vow to eliminate terrorist and violent extremist content in online platforms. Yet, smaller sites like 4chan and 8chan aren't the focus of this. And last month, the Director-General of the GCSB, Andrew Hampton, told the Justice Select Committee the country's agencies don't have the technical capability, legal authority or resources to monitor all online activity in the country. Frederick Brennan says as long as people are able to use the internet in a certain way, they can act without any fear of repercussions. We really have to look to China to kind of understand this because they're the only country that has really successfully censored their internet. And they've done it in a way that would not be palatable to most people. You know, they've attached a name to everybody's connection, even on a so-called anonymous form in China. I don't know if you know this. You have to make an account and it's anonymous to the other users of the forum, but the party and the relevant authorities can see everybody's name. So I feel like as long as the internet in the West is how it is, there is really no way to stop the kind of video spreading as what happened in the Christchurch shooting. I'm Max Toll, and you're listening to an Insight program on the consequences of anonymity on the internet. It seems likely that the best way to understand the type of people posting on anonymous message boards is by speaking to people who post on anonymous message boards. Ginger Gorman says she spent five years frequenting sites like 4chan and interacting with its users. These are cohorts of generally young white men disaffected, often from quite low-income families. They've been brought up in difficult circumstances often, and often they've been parented by the internet. And what happens is young kids essentially left alone on the internet, boys, 
with no parents around and they get radicalised into trolling. So they get radicalised into hate, they're uh, imbibing online misogyny, they're imbibing white supremacy and so forth. Frederick Brennan used to be one of those kids. The 8chan creator says growing up, from the age of 12, he would open 4chan at dawn and only shut down at dusk. He says his parents were very lax and would often let him skip school, allowing him to post anonymously all day. He suffers from brittle bone disease and says anonymous forums provided him with an escape from real life. I use those sites a lot, I believe, because I just felt like people on there were very honest and quote-unquote real. And I felt like due to my disability, a lot of people treat me in a, like they... They just treat me differently, you know, like they aren't quote unquote real with me because, you know, they see me as somebody who is more easily injured or something like that. I mean, there were a lot of people who saw me as, you know, oh, you have a weak body, so you probably have a weak mind also. You know, like some people would treat me like I was mentally disabled as well, even though I wasn't. So I just felt like these sites where nobody knew that I had a disability, it was very freeing for me. You know, I could be on the same level as everybody else. We were all the same. He says in the past couple of years, he's decided to stop using anonymous sites as much as possible. And reflecting on that time now, he believes he wasted a lot of his life. Kathleen Kuhn teaches media at Victoria University, specialising in surveillance and online privacy, and says in anonymous forums, people often display a significant amount of bravado. There's an idea, a media theory called the spiral of silence. If you hold, again, a minority political view, uh, you might not want to speak out about those views. And so the idea is that people with minority political views don't get to participate, and so therefore they will retreat to anonymous spaces in order to express those opinions that they might have. And minority opinion isn't always the outright either. Uh, it depends, again, on context, on where someone's living or their, even the social groups that they run in. Their minority opinion might actually be the majority opinion, but they can't express it on Facebook because all their friends say are really conservative or something to that effect. She raises the possibility that some users don't really believe what they write online, but are simply being provocative or trolling. Those thoughts may exist in their hearts and minds, who knows. There is behavioural research that talks about the idea or the concept of disassociative identity, where if you create, say, a fake profile, your goal is to be a troll. That sort of fakeness, like you're not putting anything of your real self or your real identity into that account, and so disassociative identity sort of speaks to the sense that there's no connection to the self, and that can actually encourage antisocial behavior because you're not actually performing the person that uh, really perceive yourself to be. That's just one explanation. Um, but it does explain sort of why some people who might in, you know, in other contexts be really good people or seem really open-minded have a Jekyll and Hyde personality. Yet, in Frederick Brennan's experience using and running his own anonymous site, the racism, the sexism, the homophobia, it's real. This is something that I feel like a lot of people use as a shield. Most of the people who are making posts on 4chan that are edgy, you know, that say racist terms, at least some part of them believes what they're posting. And there are a lot of true believers on, you know, 4chan, 8chan sites like that. 
And I know that because I used to administrate one and I would get emails from, you know, a lot of people and I would talk to them and I would see, wow, I am actually talking to a neo-Nazi right now. And the anonymity is key. When you take away somebody's name and their image, people will say what is really in the dark crevices of their heart. You know what I mean? They know that it's not going to be traced back to them. So people really open up and you get to see what's really, you know, inside some people. And there's nothing to stop them. There's no way to curtail what they might say and there's no way to prevent them from connecting with like-minded people. As long as the internet is anonymous, there will always be anonymous spaces where people congregate. I mean, I've seen it firsthand that when an image board collapses, they just move to other ones. One crude solution, endorsed by Martin Cocker, is blocking these sites. After the Christchurch attacks, New Zealand's biggest internet service providers, or ISPs, Vodafone, Spark and Two Degrees, came together to block people's access to 8chan, 4chan, Kiwi Farms and dozens of other similar sites. In a joint statement, they argued the extraordinary move was to restrict the availability of harmful content. We also accept it is impossible as internet service providers to prevent completely access to this material. But hopefully we have made it more difficult for this content to be viewed and shared, reducing the risk our customers may inadvertently be exposed to it and limiting the publicity the gunman was clearly seeking. We acknowledge that in some circumstances access to legitimate content may have been prevented and that this raises questions about censorship. For that we apologise to our customers. This is all the more reason why an urgent and broader discussion is required. Internet service providers are the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff with blunt tools involving the blocking of sites after the fact. The greatest challenge is how to prevent this sort of material being uploaded and shared on social media platforms and forums. The blocks lasted a couple of weeks before access was restored. Martin Cocker says Vodafone, Spark and Two Degrees were under immense pressure and did the right thing. More people may have watched the live stream and read parts of the manifesto on bigger platforms like Facebook and Twitter, but he says the comparison is unfair. They were actively working to remove the content, so yes, I agree that there were definitely videos being hosted on those sites or surviving on those sites for a period, but there was a lot of activity directed at removing the content. So, you know, it would be inappropriate to block players in the market who are, you know, actively trying to do the right thing. The, the sites that have been blocked were ones that were trying to do the wrong thing. The blocks were, however, criticised, both internationally and at home by some in the tech world, who felt they restricted people's freedom of expression. April Glazer, a technology journalist at the American online magazine Slate, wrote, 4chan and 8chan may be awful places that facilitate ugliness, but that doesn't render the actions of ISP's Vodafone, Spark and Two Degrees less concerning. While it's refreshing to see technology companies act swiftly to protect their users, in this case it's also unsettling. Internet providers operate at a layer above websites, users and even many infrastructural parts of the web. It is censorship when ISPs, which are merely gateways to those conversations, try to take on hate speech or other content themselves. We don't want ISPs making those calls. The Sri Lankan government's blackout of social media sites after the terror bombings on Easter Sunday came under similar scrutiny. Frederick Brennan says right now it's impossible to stop or even identify those determined to spread content like the live stream, 
when they can get around blocks with options such as direct transfers between devices, such as peer-to-peer networks, or downloading technology known as torrenting. It would stop quote-unquote normal people that don't understand exactly how this works, how an IP address works, and then, you know, the domain name system and how domains are attached to what actual server you're going to. But, you know, for people that understand even DNS at a basic level, it was pretty ineffective because I, I heard that all you had to do was just stop using your ISP's DNS and use another DNS and then suddenly you could access those sites again. The kinds of tech-savvy people who are responsible for really spreading this video around on peer-to-peer networks, uh, that's not going to affect them at all. Here in New Zealand, what really concerns the chairperson of the Council of Civil Liberties, Thomas Beagle, is the apparent lack of process. Well, the ISPs, I think, they claim they took the action on their own. It wasn't all of the ISPs, but it did include three major ones, which you know probably connect well over 90% of the population. So it was an effective form of censorship in that way. Now, the wider issues, of course, is that those sites they blocked are used for many, many purposes, 4chan and 8chan and, and so on. They're not just hotbeds of extremism dedicated to sharing offensive videos. They're actually you know, sites are used for discussing you know, anime and TV and all sorts of other things as well, and also politics as well. And that's where the, you know, the, the limiting of freedom of expression comes in. And as he says, anonymity on the internet can be important, and restrictions like those in China would be rejected by the vast majority of the population. It might be easier for individuals to be abusive, lapse into toxic exchanges, and generally lack respect or empathy when shielded by anonymity on the internet, but Kathleen Kuhn says there is also a positive side. It can give a voice to the voiceless. There's a lot of reasons why people want to remain anonymous. That is different according to context. On the one hand, you've got places, you know, in under people living under repressive regimes have a vested political interest in remaining anonymous if they want to criticize the government, uh, if they want to, you know, organize a protest. They have an interest in, you know, not coming under surveillance or not being... Uh, punished for their views. In, you know, liberal democratic societies, we see a lot of people who might not necessarily have the same fears, right, where they're allowed to, you know, organize politically. Um, But some people just don't want to come under surveillance either. Some people just don't want to be watched. Other anonymous spaces might include closed discussion groups regarding gay rights, anonymous auctions on Trade Me, or, for people like Frederick Brennan, when he was a teenager having the freedom to anonymously talk about his disability. Kathleen Kuhn says the internet is built on the idea of experimenting with ideas without the fear of being socially sanctioned. Early internet research really sort of upheld the ability to participate in anonymous forums, for example, like old-school bulletin boards, because it gave people a space to try on different identities, to um, self-express without fear of being, you know, sanctioned by their friends. People could locate people like them. I mean, that was the early, you know, some of the earliest celebrations around the Internet as this great democratizer. It was like anyone can get on there. You can find someone who's not like you, but increasingly have been associated with more nefarious activities. She cites the comments section, for instance, on media sites. International research often shows most notably in a study published in the journal Journalism Practice in 2014, that allowing readers to post anonymously leads to both an increase in activity and in civility.
If you want to increase attention to your site, pays to keep the comments anonymous. But I think kind of the cultural tide is is shifting a bit where people are being a little becoming a bit less tolerant of that of that sort of thing and people are just tired of the abuse online. Anonymous internet use can also manifest itself as bullying. A few years ago, while she was still in high school, Olivia, who didn't want her real name or voice used, signed up to a social network that allows people to send and receive messages anonymously. She remembers the site was particularly popular at her school, yet the majority of messages people received weren't exactly polite. I was abroad and away from my normal school and friends for a while, and I would get messages every day saying, New Zealand is better off without you. Don't come home. No one wants you here. All of your friends don't want you anymore. Every time I would reply, another would be there. I was anxious and on edge all day waiting to check to see what was coming next, who would be next to turn against me. I remember thinking, how can I piss you off so bad when I'm not even in the country? I'm still so, so embarrassed by the whole thing. People were able to be the worst versions of themselves. There was no one to hold them accountable for what they said. They could be whoever they wanted and not risk ever being caught out. Makes you think about what you might say if it was never able to be traced back to you. While Olivia has put the trauma of that online experience behind her, such sites continue. Kathleen Kuhn says it's often in their best interests, at least economically, for organisations, businesses and websites to encourage anonymous discourse. It increases likes, clicks and attention. And while some people behave badly in these spaces, closer monitoring and content moderation isn't always possible. HN's founder, Frederick Brennan, says it's no surprise New Zealand agencies are scratching their heads. Every country has to decide what they want from the internet. Do they want to connect to the free, open internet where you can say anything, you can be anonymous, you know, you can spread a, a live stream video so that it can never be deleted and it will be on the internet forever? Or do you as a country want to kind of segregate yourself from that, as China and other countries have done and are doing. If you're connected to the free and open internet, as soon as you get to a server that's not in New Zealand, your police are kind of impotent. There's really not much they can do. Kathleen Kuhn says as more of our political conversations occur in spaces owned by private international companies, who governs that content becomes more important but she also wants a focus on the thoughts and feelings that drive people to these sites in the first place. A lot of times when I hear people talking about anonymity and um, how are we going to stop abusive content online, how are we going to resolve this issue with the alt-right or hate speech, we always seem to resort to like a technological fix. Well, we just need to make the technology better and then that'll solve all the problems. And I don't really think that that's it. So for me, if you want to fix the problem, you actually need to address the ideology itself. You're not going to solve hate speech until you solve racism and sexism and homophobia. And if you want to address the issue online, fine. But I don't think employing better technology is going to solve the racist problem that the world has. That's the work I feel that needs to be done. And anything else is just a Band-Aid. Nevertheless, the Royal Commission inquiry into the shootings will attempt to determine whether there is a technological answer and if more could or should have been done. That programme was written and presented by Max Toll. 
If you'd like to podcast some more long-form journalism, you can head to our page at rnz.co.nz slash insight, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Philip Tolley, and that's all from Insight for today. Join us again next time. Thank you.